In 1 Kings 17, verse 1, we read, And Elijah the Tishbite said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Elijah, the mightiest of the Old Testament prophets, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, was sent to waken Israel to their fatal delusion of seeking Baal while thinking they were seeking Jehovah and to warn them that they would reap their own destruction unless they repented. 850 years later, John the Baptist, filled with the power and spirit of Elijah, was sent to awaken the remnant of Israel to their fatal delusion of seeking Barabbas while thinking they were seeking Christ and to warn them that they would reap their own destruction unless they repented. If we consider both Elijah and John, we notice that they shared many, many similarities. Elijah is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that John was the greatest prophet born of women. Elijah was filled with the power of the Spirit, and John was filled with the Spirit from his birth. Both Elijah and John wore garments of sackcloth. Both Elijah and John spent their time in the seclusion of the wilderness. Both Elijah and John were opposed by an apostate king, an illegitimate queen and her subordinates. In the case of Elijah, it was Ahab, Jezebel and her false prophets. Well, in the case of John, it was Herod, Herodias and her daughter. Notably, these great prophets, neither of them had any visions. They did not prophesy in the usual sense of the word as did other prophets. For example, Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, etc. Their mission was not to inform the people, not to give them knowledge about the future. The mission was to bring back to God a rebellious and revolted people who were so blind to their true condition that they thought themselves blessed of God while heaping to themselves his wrath. Perhaps the most notable similarity between the two is that neither Elijah nor John completed the work that they had begun. In both cases, their work was cut short. In the case of Elijah, the work was completed by Elisha. And in the case of John the Baptist, his work was completed by Jesus Christ. Now we see this two-phase ministry in other great Reformation movements. Moses did not complete the work of leading Israel into Canaan. That was completed by Joshua. David did not complete his plans of building the temple that had been completed by Solomon. Ezra did not complete his plans of restoring Israel. That had to be completed by Nehemiah. William Miller did not complete the preaching of the three angels' messages. Only the first and second. And another prophet had to arise by the name of Ellen G. White with power to complete 
the third angel's message. There are also many parallels, not just between Elijah and John, but between Elisha and Jesus. Both Elijah and Jesus had a greater portion of the Spirit than their predecessors. Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. As we're told in 2 Kings 2.9, And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And Jesus had a greater portion of the spirit than John. As John himself said in Luke 3.16, I indeed baptise you with water, but one mightier than I cometh, and he shall baptise you with Holy Ghost and with fire. As Elisha took the mantle from Elijah, so Christ took John's baptism of repentance throughout Israel. As Elisha healed Naaman, the leper, so Christ healed the lepers, and no one had healed lepers since Elisha. As Elijah healed the bitter waters, so Christ brought living water to the people. As Elisha made the oil not to cease until there was no more room for it, Christ gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples until there was no more room for them to receive it. In his death, Elisha brought the dead to life. As we read in 2 Kings 13 21, it came to pass as they were burying a man that behold they spied a band of men and they cast the dead man into the sepulchre of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Likewise, in his death, Christ brought many to resurrection and life. As Elisha cleansed his house, from the unprofitable servant who coveted the things of this world, so too Christ will cleanse his house from all his unprofitable servants that love the world and the things that are in the world. As Elisha was commissioned to execute final judgment, as we read in 1 Kings 19.17, And it shall come to pass that he that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Likewise, final judgment has been commissioned to Christ for him to execute. As we read in John 5.22, For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. There are many profound parallels between the missions, the combined mission of Elijah and Elisha, and that of John and Jesus. Both Elijah and Jesus ministered for three and a half years. Both Elisha and John's ministries ended with their deaths. Both Elijah and Christ visibly ascended into heaven. We see in this two-phase ministry these two witnesses. The complete work of restoration for God's wayward people. Those who would not hear that would not repent and turn their hearts to God were cut off from among God's people and doomed to utter destruction. A few years after the death of Elisha, probation closed for Israel. They had severed their connection with God. Within a lifetime of Elisha's ministry, Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, was destroyed 
and Israel, the ten tribes, were taken away captive. A few years after the death of Christ, probation closed for the Jews. They had severed their connection with God. Within a lifetime of Christ's ministry, Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jews were taken away again captive. And great controversy, page 341, tells us that the work of God in the earth presents from age to age a striking similarity in every great reformation or religious movement. The principles of God's dealing with men are ever the same. The important movements of the present have their parallels in those of the past and the experience of the church in former ages has lessons of great value for our own time. I wonder, what lessons of great value does the ministry of Elijah hold for our own time? You see, in Elijah's day, the people had rejected God the Father for another God. In John's day, the people had rejected the long-awaited God the Son for another man. Is it possible that we might reject the long-awaited God the Holy Spirit for another spirit? Now the Bible tells us that the mission of John the Baptist was to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just in Luke 1.17. And I ask, did John come to eliminate the generation gap? What about Elijah? Did they even have a generation gap 3,000 years ago? The word fathers in this text, in the original, is actually in the singular, father. It's almost always translated as father. The word the in the expression the children is not in the original Hebrew and often refers specifically to a son or sons or daughters. So that a more literal translation of this verse would be that the mission of John and Elijah was to turn the heart of the father to his children. In the days of Elijah and John, the sins and disobedience of Israel had turned the heart of the Heavenly Father away from his foolish children. They had turned away from him and forced God to turn away from them. As we read in Malachi 3.7, Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But she said, wherein shall we return? Or why do we need to return? It is not that they were in open rebellion. They believed that they were faithfully serving God. They were self-deceived and blinded to their departure from him. As we read in Prophets and Kings, page 147, like a dark cloud, deception and blindness had overspread Israel. Not all at once had this fatal apostasy closed about them, but gradually, as from time to time they had failed to heed the words of warning and reproof that the Lord had sent them. Each departure from right doing, each refusal to repent, had deepened their guilt and driven them farther from heaven. While thinking they were serving God, and at the same time choosing their own way, and refusing to repent for doing this, 
It had led them to the point where they no longer recognised God and confused him for a God of their own creation. A God according to their own imagination. One that allowed them to serve self while claiming to serve Jehovah. They had changed leaders and knew not that they had done so. Accordingly, their worship of God was totally, totally in vain. As we read in Isaiah 58, 2-3. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a, gen- as a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our souls, and thou takest no knowledge? God had through Moses warned Israel precisely of this and told them what the sure result would be. In Deuteronomy 11:10, Take heed to yourselves, he said, that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And this was them being deceived. They weren't doing it on purpose. And then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heavens, that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, lest ye perish quickly from off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Yet in Elijah's day, Israel believed they were faithfully serving God and could only see God's blessings all around them. They could not see that the drought was but the fulfilment of Moses' prophecy. Elijah's mission was to unmask their deception of vain worship and turn God's people back to him so that they could enjoy his favour and his blessings that he wished to give them so that he could give them rain. As you read about in Jeremiah 5.23 But this people are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain, both the former and the latter, in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. But your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. The drought in Israel but it was a physical manifestation of a much deeper spiritual reality. Their compromises with the world and their spiritual pride had driven away the Holy Spirit. Yet they could not see their spiritual destitution. Elijah's mission was to open their eyes to the harsh reality. The condition of the land of Israel would become a representation of the spiritual condition of its people. Prophets and Kings again, 124. The earth is parched as with fire. The scorching heat of the sun destroys what little vegetation has survived. Streams dry up. The lowing herds and bleeding flocks wander hither and thither in distress. Once flourishing fields have become like burning desert sands, a desolate waste. The groves dedicated to idol worship are leafless. The forest trees, gaunt skeletons of nature, afford no shade. The air is dry and suffocated. Dust storms blind the eyes and nearly stop the breath. Now the mission of John the Baptist was identical. The Jews were devoid of God's spirit. Yet they thought they were spiritually blessed above all people and were waiting for even greater blessings from God. They looked at the impressive and godly and costly buildings of the temple and could only see splendour and prosperity and said to Jesus, Master, see what manner of stones and what building. 
But Jesus saw only death and desolation and declared, There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. What do we see when we look upon our church? Do we see prosperity or do we see desolation? John called for them to repent from their blindness and spiritual pride in order for them to receive the blessings expected from God. But their self-righteousness and refusal to repent made it impossible for Christ to pour upon all but a few the Holy Spirit. Jesus told us that like a father he desires to give good things to his children. God wants to give us the Holy Ghost without measure. He wants us to richly enjoy the gifts of the Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit in abundance, to experience the convicting power and mighty works of the Spirit. Where is all this today? Have our iniquities also turned away these things and our sins withholden good things from us? Have we also turned away from God while thinking we are serving him? Do we, like Israel, only see spiritual prosperity all around and think we have God's blessings above all others? Do we rejoice, thinking we are filled with the Holy Spirit and expect an even greater outpouring of the Spirit while being in the midst of a devastating spiritual famine without realising it? What was it that Joel saw concerning the last days? Joel 1.15 Alas for the day! For the day of the Lord is at hand. And verse 12, the vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes, the promulgate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. How, ye ministers of the altar, come, Lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Is not the meat cut off from before your eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of the cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of the sheep are made desolate. What time was he writing about? Now Israel did not need any more light, any more knowledge. This is why neither Elijah nor John had any visions or prophecies. There was nothing Elijah could say that would have made any impression on their hearts. There was no amount of preaching, no amount of reproof would have made any difference. They thought they knew all that was needed. No amount of additional truth could impress them. No amount of increased light would help them see. They were completely self-deceived about their own condition. Israel represented the exact opposite of what God required, yet they saw themselves as a flourishing tree, a fruitful vine, they saw themselves blessed by God, prosperous and free, a strong nation they needed not be ashamed. No amount of reproof could make any impression on them. Only as Israel experienced the judgment and wrath of God would a few wake up and see their true condition. 
Only then would a few be broken and their proud spirit crushed, seeing themselves utterly condemned and humiliated, forsaken of God. Only then would a few cry to him to save them from their condition. Paul, after attempting to reach the Corinthians through wisdom and knowledge, realised that only by preaching Christ and him crucified could he enlighten their darkened minds. It is not more knowledge, no increase in understanding that we need, but a new spirit, a new experience, the experience of God's judgment on our own souls. Today, it is only as we see Christ broken, as we see his spirit crushed by sin, as we see him led away captive by his enemies, defeated and humiliated in the judgment hall, as we see him crucified and hear him cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, as he suffers the wrath of God, can we even begin to realise that only as we are broken, as our proud spirits are crushed, as we see that we are so easily led away captive by our enemy, that we are completely powerless to resist Satan's power, and see ourselves standing condemned and humiliated before God's judgment with the wrath of God upon us, and we cry out to God as Christ did, can we begin to realise what it means to be crucified together with him and to die with him? that we might live his life. Only as we experience God's judgment upon our own souls and are broken can the image of God be restored. Only as our spirit is crushed can we receive a new spirit. Only as we are defeated can we gain the victory. Only as we are humiliated can we be glorified. Only as we are buried can we be raised anew. Only as we are crucified can we live only if we cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, can we obtain his presence. Only as we suffer with him can we be made perfect. They say the blood of martyrs is seed, but I say to you that our perseverance in Christ's sufferings, even as we are utterly defeated in this world, is our most glorious victory. Unless we experience the judgment of God in our own soul, we will never come before him broken, crushed, defeated, condemned, humiliated, powerless and forsaken as one crucified together with Christ. The only question is, will we willingly seek this experience or will we, like Israel, first have to experience God's judgment before we will wake up? Many will not learn by hearing. If it is possible for them to learn at all, that will need to learn by experience. It is one thing to stand at the foot of the cross and behold Christ as did the Jews. It is quite another thing to be crucified together with him as Paul commands. One is the adoration of an external impersonal God in the mind. One that is absent from the heart and the spirit. The other is Christ in you, the hope of glory, as Paul says, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Israel's deception 
was in thinking that worshipping an external God with their minds and with their feelings constituted the worship of the true God. The name of that God is Baal. The worship of Jehovah is altogether different. It requires an ongoing transformation of the mind and spirit. It requires having the thoughts and the spirit of Christ crucified continually within you. It requires our spirit to be broken and our self-image to be crushed to realise how easily we are led away by the enemy and how completely powerless we are to resist his deceptions and stand humiliated before God's judgement and cry out for God's presence. That is the true worship that Jehovah requires from us. In John the Baptist's day, Satan had strengthened his deception by now adding that God was to be worshipped not only with your mind and your feelings, but with your external deeds. The name of that God is Barabbas. But the deeds of the flesh are never pleasing to God, no matter their end, nor how noble, nor how heroic they may be. The keeping of the letter of the law brings only greater condemnation to those who have not been born again, to those who are still in the flesh. They are but whited sepulchres, and their good works as filthy rags. They may call out the last day, Lord, Lord, we have done many wonderful works, but unless they're born again, they will never see the kingdom of God. Like the Pharisees of old, they are blind and know not God, neither the power of God. They have not been transformed into the image of Christ, the dying Lamb of God. Today, Satan has yet again strengthened his deception by adding that God is to be worshipped not only with our minds and feelings and our deeds, but by church membership. But the baptism of today, whether it be by a ritual of water or by some emotional phenomenon, has become a means to permit human institutions to sit in the temple of God, showing themselves that they are God. As you read in Prophets and Kings, page 170, the apostasy prevailing today is similar to that which in the prophet's day overspread Israel. In the exaltation of the human above the divine, in the praise of popular leaders, in the worship of mammon and the placing of the teachings of science above the truths of revelation, multitudes today are following after Baal, the enemy of all truth, is working with deceptive power to cause men and women to place human institutions where God should be. The baptism of John was not about initiating people into church membership or submitting yourselves to the rule of priests or church councils, but into a life of repentance. John called the people to turn from the external forms of the religion to its substance. Unless there has been a complete death to the old man, unless there is a new creature made in the image of Christ and him crucified, baptism only brings a greater condemnation. Today the spirit of Elijah calls us to turn away from the external motions of religion to the internal transformation of our spirit. Only those who daily take up their cross in the imitation of Christ's death, not in external deeds, but in the inward transformation of mind and character, know and worship the true God. This is why Elijah and John stood in stark contrast to the people of Israel. Israel's treasured the externals 
things of life. Fine clothes, refined manners, polite speeches, political correctness, commendable deeds. Things that breed self-satisfaction and public applause. God does not care for any of this, but only for the things of the heart, a broken and a contrite heart. Born out of self-abasement, born out of true repentance, the fruit of the new birth. It does not matter how many years you've been in the church, how many good deeds you have done, how many miracles you have witnessed or even performed, unless you're born again, unless you have a new heart, new thoughts, new feelings, unless you have the Spirit of Christ crucified, you have not taken up your cross and are not his disciple. Because this is what it means to be like Christ, to share in his character. Now today, the same conditions exist in the church as it did thousands of years ago. Because God declared in Malachi 4, 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now the word here, curse, means utter, total destruction. The extermination of everything on the earth. And Elijah's come just before that great and dreadful day. And if he's not received, the earth will be utterly destroyed. Now Jesus tells us very clearly that while Elijah had come in the person of John, that Elijah would come again. Matthew 17.10, his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elias must first come? And verse 11, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. Did John restore all things? Was the first advent of Jesus the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Jesus didn't come to smite the earth with a curse. He came not to condemn, but to save and to bless. To preach, as we read in Luke 4.19, the acceptable year of the Lord. So Jesus declared that Elijah would certainly come again before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. A day of judgment, not a day of mercy. A day of fear, not a day of peace. A day on which God will smite the entire earth with a curse and be utterly destroyed. As you read in 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come in which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Before that day, Christ has said Elijah will return. Why will he come? Will he come to do a different work than before? Will Elijah come to prepare a people for a baptism of the Holy Ghost and with fire? Will he come to awaken his people out of their faithful delusion that they are serving God while worshipping Baal? The delusion that they are following Christ while seeking Barabbas? The delusion that they are rich and increased in the spirit when they are spiritually famished and utterly desolate, as we read before in Joel? Will he come to warn God's people that while they claim to be seeking and waiting for the latter rain, they resist the Holy Spirit and seek another? If Elijah comes to do a similar work, to lay bare the delusions and sins of God's people, how will he be received? Will he be like somebody crying in the wilderness, 
Will he call God's people to repentance, leaders, ministry and loyalty? How many will hear him? Will he be hated as was Elijah or despised as was John? Is there any real need for Elijah to return? Isn't Christ's church, in spite of its feebleness and defects, the only object on earth on which he bestows his supreme regard? Aren't we those that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus, God's faithful remnant? Aren't we the ones that are waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord? Isn't the church holy, united in Christ and apostolic in faith? All of these things are exactly the reason why Elijah must come. Because while that is what God has called us to be, we have fallen far, far short of what God requires. Yet ancient Israel prided itself on being God's chosen people, a light to the surrounding nations, a peculiar people, but they had backslidden. How many of them in the days of Elijah were really that much different from the heathen around them? They claimed to serve God but kept him to the side while they followed Baal. In the first century, the Jewish nation was expecting the coming of the Messiah, but how many were really any different from any other subjugated nations around them wanting to be freed also from the Romans? They claimed to be waiting for the Messiah. They wanted Christ's power but preferred Barabbas' objectives. Today we pride ourselves on the many spiritual blessings that we have received and even the greater ones we expect to receive. We claim to be waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit but are we really seeking the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit or are we seeking the same Spirit that the other churches around us also seek? Is it possible that we have backslidden to the point where we would not recognise and reject the outpouring of the Holy Spirit exactly the same way as the Jews rejected Christ. Battle Creek Letters, page 55. What a wonderful work would have been done for the vast company gathered in Battle Creek at the General Conference in 1901 if the leaders of our work had taken themselves in hand but the work that all heaven was waiting to do as soon as men prepared the way was not done. For the leaders closed and bolted the door against the Spirit's entrance. Men left their sins unconfessed. We must reap the fruit of the evil seed we sow. Those who give an opportunity to repent and reform pass over the ground without humbling their hearts before God. Without doing faithful work in putting away that which he reproves will become hardened against the counsel of the Lord Jesus. That was in 1901. Now I ask, is that door still bolted and shut? Are we reaping the fruit of the evil seed that was sown? We wonder if they later repented. Two years later, at the next general conference meeting, we read, manuscript released, volume 13, page 122, the result of that last general conference, the one in 1903, has been the greatest, most terrible sorrow of my life. Talking about the same meeting in Testimonies, Volume 8, page 104, men did not humble themselves before the Lord as they should have done, and the Holy Spirit was not imparted. We claim to be waiting for the Holy Spirit, 
But not only did we close and bolt the door to him, but we threw away the key. We expect to receive the latter rain at any moment. Jeremiah 3.3 comes to mind. Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain. And thou hast a whore's forehead, and refuse to be ashamed. The message of Elijah is a startling message that God's people have turned away from him and rejected his spirit. And unless they repent, they will reap their own destruction. Today, like then, the church believes itself to be endowed with great God's presence and his blessings, that it will be never cut down, that it is full of wheat and is confident of receiving the heavenly inheritance. Like in the days of John, its members say within ourselves, we have Abraham for our father. But I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. John declared they will be spewed out unless they return to God from whom they had departed. He said, And now also the axe is laid to, to the root of the tree. Every tree therefore which bringeth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. And his fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner. But the chaff he will burn with fire unquenchable. Today, as then, Elijah must come again to warn God's remnant people that they will also be cut down and be spewed out unless they return to God from whom they have departed. He's reading Revelations 3, 16 and 19. I will spew thee out of my mouth, be therefore zealous and repent. This is why the spirit and power of Elijah must first prepare a people because we are unready to receive the latter rain. We would not re recognise it if it came. We would confuse it as did the Israelites as they confused Baal or Barabbas. The spirit of Elijah will certainly come to call us to repentance and in turn to turn the heart of the Father to his children so that God can pour his blessings upon us. As you read in Joel 2, Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rent your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. Who knoweth if he will repent and leave a blessing? It was Elijah that anointed Elisha, and brought the first rains of a greater outpouring of the Spirit under Elisha. It was John that baptised Jesus, and brought the first taste of a greater outpouring of the Spirit under Jesus. So it is the early rain that seals God's people and brings them the first taste of the latter rain. The prophet Joel declared that before God sends the latter rain, he will send the former or early rain. Joel 2.23, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately. And it will cause to come down for you the rain, the former and the latter rain in the first month. And verse 28, And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. We desire and seek for the latter rain, but do we desire and seek the early rain? Now many think, that the latter rain will come all by itself just because we ask for it. First selected messages, page 112, there must be earnest effort to obtain the blessings of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow his blessings upon us, but because we are unprepared to receive it. Our Father is more willing to give us his Holy Spirit to them that ask him than earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. 
So what preparation is it that we need? Is it some kind of church program that's put together by the leadership? Is it some kind of organised prayer or study plan where we all get together certain days or hours and all pray? Or is it something else that we've completely overlooked? If you're in Herald, 2nd of March, 1897, at no point in our experience can we dispense with the assistance of that which enables us to make the first start. The blessings received under the former reign are needful to us to the end. We cherish the blessings of the early reign. There will be no latter rain unless we receive the early rain. If Elisha's work was but a continuation of Elijah's work, could Elisha finish a work that Elijah had not first started? Could Jesus finish a work without John the Baptist having begun it? Can the latter rain finish a work that the early rain has not begun? What is the first start to receive the latter rain? First selected messages, page 121 again. But it is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance and earnest prayer to fulfil the conditions upon which God has promised to grant us his blessing. This is clearly spelt out. Confession, humiliation, repentance and prayer. This work, the work of John the Baptist, is the work of the early reign. This is the essence, the character of the early reign. The essence, the character of John the Baptist's mission became preaching the need for repentance. Now many confuse the early reign with the general working of the Holy Ghost in the heart. And they say, oh well, you know, we received it when we were baptised. Now if that is the case, then all men everywhere have received the early reign because God's Spirit strives with all men. Matthew 5.45 Your Father which is in heaven sendeth rain upon the just and the unjust. Rain. So the work of the general work of the Holy Ghost is not the early rain because all have this influence. Just as the Spirit of God was in the world leading men to repentance before Pentecost, it is clear that the formal early rain is not just another name for the general working of the Holy Spirit. There is a special outpouring of the Spirit to prepare God's people to receive the latter rain. There is a set time or season for both the latter rain and the former rain to come. And both have been delayed. As we read in Jeremiah 5, 25 The Lord our God that giveth rain both the former and the latter in his season. He reserves unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Now many believe that they received the early rain when they were baptised. But that's easily demonstrated to be a false idea. At Pentecost, which is known as the former rain, the disciples received an outpouring of the former rain. They spoke in tongues, they prophesied, and miracles followed after them. Now, not all that were baptised received the Holy Ghost. For example, we have Acts chapter 8, where we are told how the Samaritans believed at the preaching of Philip, and how Peter and John were sent to minister unto the Samaritans that believed, and to lay hands on them to receive the Holy Ghost. And how one called Simon Magus, who had himself been baptised, upon seeing um, Peter, offered Peter money to also have the power to impart the Holy Ghost. So it's very clear that they were baptised but had not received the early rain, the former rain. There's also no evidence that the Ethiopian that was baptised by Philip by the side of the road received the former rain. Then there's the case 
of Cornelius and his household, he received the former rain before even having been baptised. So baptism and the former rain are unrelated. So it is clear the baptism of water, which is a response to the general work of the Holy Spirit in the heart, and the baptism of the Spirit in the form of the early rain, do not occur at the same time. When you were baptised, did you speak in tongues? Did you prophesy? Were thousands converted at your preaching? What evidence is there to show that the early rain is given a baptism? There is none. The clear fact is that everyone in the church has been baptised, but only a small number of those who have been baptised have actually been converted. Is it possible for the unconverted to receive the early rain? Testimonies volume 7, page 13. I'm alarmed for the people of God who profess to believe solemn important truths. I know that many who now profess to believe the truth are not converted or sanctified. Our people need to humble their hearts, confess their sins and be converted. So one thing is clear, and that is that we need to receive the former rain just as much as we need to receive the latter rain. Review on Herald 2nd of March uh, 1897. If we do not place ourselves in an attitude to receive both the former and the latter rain, we shall lose our souls and the responsibility will lie at our own door. So we have to be in an attitude to receive it. If we already have it, why are we going to receive it? Letter 8, 1896, we may be sure that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, those who do not receive and appreciate the early rain will not see or understand the value of the latter rain because they won't recognise it. The Jews that rejected John were the same ones that rejected Jesus. The Israelites who rejected Elijah are the ones that did not accept Elisha's ministry. The pattern is very clear. Those that overlooked or reject the earlier rain will not receive the latter rain. It does not matter how much we pray for Christ to come, as did the Jews. If we do not receive the heaven-sent forerunner, our prayers for the latter rain will be of no use. We read before about those who rejected the coming of Elijah that God would smite them with a curse, with utter destruction. When Jerusalem was totally destroyed, it, was it because they rejected Christ or was it because they rejected the message of John the Baptist? The early rain is nothing but a small taste, a subdued sample of the latter rain. Both are exactly the same spirit and do exactly the same work. The first does a work for God's people. The second does that same work for the world. The work is to call men and women to confession, humiliation and repentance. This is what the latter rain tastes like. If we don't appreciate the early rain, we will not want the latter rain. Neither will we recognise it, nor shall we receive it. As Elijah could not be received by the people unless Elijah had first broken the spell that was on Israel. As Jesus could not be received except by those that had received the baptism of repentance by John. So the latter rain cannot be received except by those who have been transformed by the early rain. Now this is the crux of the matter. Will we recognise the early rain? Did the Jews recognise John the Baptist as the forerunner of Christ? Did Ahab recognise Elijah as God's prophet? They did not. How can we be sure that we will not mistake some other spirit for the Holy Ghost? We are told of a false revival that will first come, that will consist of working up feelings and excitement and in miracles. Unless you have experienced the still small voice that spoke to Elijah on the mount, 
you will not recognize the early rain and will be deceived by the false spirit. What is the spirit of the early and the latter rain? The spirit of the Lord is a spirit of brokenness. The spirit of this age is a spirit of accomplishment. The spirit of the Lord is a spirit of repentance. The spirit of this age is a spirit of presumption. The spirit of the Lord is a spirit of self-doubt. The spirit of this age is a spirit of self-assurance. The spirit of the Lord is a spirit of self-abasement. The spirit of this age is a spirit of spiritual pride. The spirit of the Lord is a still small voice. The spirit of this age is a noisy, forceful spirit. The spirit of the Lord is a spirit of conviction. The spirit of this age is a spirit of compulsion. The spirit of the Lord is a spirit of righteousness. The spirit of this age is a spirit of indifference. The spirit of the Lord is a spirit of judgment to come. The spirit of this age sets aside God's justice. What spirit are we looking for? One that gives us power. One that builds us up. One that assures us that we are better than common sinners. That we need not fear God's judgment. Why are we pleading for the one that strips away our fig leaf and leaves us prostrate, naked and helpless before God? We are repeating the history of the Jews. God requires of us a broken spirit, a contrite heart. And has told us that unless we repent, he will spew us out of his mouth. Yet we see ourselves as a flourishing tree, as a fruitful vine, as blessed by God prosperous and free, a strong denomination that need not be ashamed. It seems that no amount of reproof can make any impression upon us as a people. This is why the early rain must come to wake us up to our true condition. Will we receive the early rain? Will we heed the spirit of Elijah and realising our desperate need plead with God to break us and crush our proud spirit, to be crucified together with him and die with him willingly? Or will we need to experience a taste of God's wrath before we will wake up and come before him defeated, condemned, humiliated, before we repent? Some that are spiritually dead will be brought back to life. Others will have already have gone too far and will never repent. And I remind you of the fires of the sanitarium and the publishing houses in 1902 that could not be put out, which were God's judgment for their refusal to repent. Will God do such things again before we wake up? Those who receive the early rain like John the Baptist will not do any miracles. They will not have any visions, but they will go forth with the convicting power of the Spirit. They will bear a message of repentance to turn back to God a backsliding people, to prepare them to receive the latter rain. They know their work, although small and with apparently little effect, will, when their house is cleansed of everything that defiles it, swell into the latter rain. The work of the latter rain is no different from the work of the early rain. It's to waken people up to the fact that God's fan is in his hand and he is about to thoroughly purge his floor. The only difference is whom that message is directed at. John's mission was to prepare the Jews to accept Christ. Christ came to prepare his disciples to take the gospel to the world. The early rain prepares those in the church to receive the latter rain. The latter rain prepares the remnant to take the gospel to the world.
The early rain will do its work for 42 months, at a time when the kings of this world are conspiring together with Babylon and her false prophet against God's people. When the work of the early rain is done, God's wrath will be poured out on those that have refused to hear in the church, while those who have received the early rain will go forth with divine power to call those in the world unto repentance. At that time, amid God's destructive judgments, many who have never known the truth and yet desire to escape the condemnation or wrath of God will hear the call of repentance and with their hearts broken and spirits crushed will call out to God to save them from themselves, to be crucified with Christ, to live his life and to suffer together with him. They will prefer to die in this life and live for Christ rather than keep their life in this world and receive its place. Elijah came, as we said before, just before probation closed for the ten tribes of Israel to wake them up, before it was forever too late for them. John the Baptist came just before probation closed for the remaining two tribes of Israel to wake them up, just before it was forever too late for them. The early rain will come just before probation closes for God's church to wake it up before it is forever too late for us. Today, Christ is calling us to seek for and receive the early rain. Those who neglect the work of the early rain will have no part in the work of the latter rain. It is the neglect of the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It is that still small voice that speaks to our soul. The early rain does not bring us power. It does not bring us victory. It does not bring us self-confidence or success. It is only a call to repentance are called to experience God's judgment upon your own soul. Because only as you cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, can we obtain his presence. Only as our spirit is crushed, can we be raised by the Holy Ghost. Only as we are humiliated, can you be glorified. Only as you are defeated, can you gain the victory. Only as you are broken, can the image of God be restored in you. Only as you are crucified can you live his life. Only as you suffer with him can you be made perfect. Only as we experience the early rain will the latter rain empower us to bring this same experience to others. Will we remain in spiritual pride and blindness, perplexed why the latter rain has not yet come? Why do we expect the latter rain when it cannot come until the early rain has done its work? The Lord has promised that he will send Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The time for us to expect the early rain has come. Are we looking for and hastening its coming?